MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, friends. I know that we don't necessarily need to seek out literature to fill us with a creeping sense of existential dread, you know, because we're living right now. But there is something to be said for using horror to reclaim power. This is Popcorn Book Club from iHeartRadio, and this week we are starting up a discussion of Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff which is now a series on HBO premiering August 17th. We talk about the terrifying monsters hiding in the woods and the monsters right out there in the open. Uh, Grizzly bear ate them, Atticus replied, trying not to dwell on the next question. Why them and not us? (laughs) Yeah. Grizzly bears are not racist. Here we go. Hey, this is Dana Schwartz. You're listening to Popcorn Book Club for My Heart Radio. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tian Tran, Karamadankwa, Jennifer Wright, and Melissa Hunter. How's everyone doing? You know, don't all talk at once. Fine. <laughs> Just fine. Fine. We are, I feel like fine is the just the answer for the mm-hmm. next year, maybe. Just it's... Yeah. We're, we're surviving. Yeah. Anyone's doing, yeah, if anyone's doing more than fine, I'm like, I don't trust you. Yeah, you're a <laughs> sociopath. You're so you're not paying attention. <laughs> Today we are diving into uh, our first section on Lovecraft Country by Matt mm-hmm. Ruff, about to be a very buzzy HBO series. And I, spoiler alert, went a little bit past our assigned reading, and wow. it's sort of a. How a dare series you. Of, of loosely interconnected stories. Wow. But today we are just talking about the first and longest story. Judas. Which is the, <laughs> the first one. <laughs> I'm, I got it. I got to do these things. I got to prepare us all. No, I definitely flipped through and also saw yeah. because I was like, what the fuck can happen now? I started a yeah. little bit because it is such a like short story. Oh, I, I am didn't look at the casting. I looked yet. at the casting. I am so excited. What is his name? The man from Last Black Man of San Francisco. That's the star Karen. of it. Mm-hmm. And also excited for Journey. the woman who's playing. Yeah, Journey, Journey Smollett. Smollett Bell. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> uh, it's 
going to be really good. I'm glad to see she's still getting work after her brother publicly shamed himself. <laughs> yeah, it's not her fault. It's not her fault. Yeah. She's amazing. She's been around forever since like, Yeah, I loved we her kids. in Friday Night Lights. Yeah. Um, no, I, I want to talk about this, but I'm curious also who they get to play like Caleb, like who's oh, just like the too. whitest prep yes. school guy that yeah. can come Oh up yeah, with. I want to see evil there are prep school a lot of, gentlemen. A lot of actors that could play that part. <laughs> Hollywood loves white Army prep school men. <laughs> oh my God, Army Hammer. Army Hammer was in a Broadway play called Straight White Men. So he's primed yeah. to play. Any Josh or Chris or Scott, you know, there's a lot of them. <laughs> oh. You know, Chris, it's like when a when an, oh, a a shiny actor decides to sort of take on and become a villain a little bit to yeah. show that he has range. Mm-hmm. It's like a Chris is going to be like, look what I can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a Chris. It's like a Chris it's a Pratt. Chris. He's like, yeah. I was a clown and now I'm an action hero and now I'm evil. <laughs> the problem with Chris Pratt is I secretly think like maybe he's a little too racist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is. I am not saying he's. He's just. He's like a very maga. He has a maga energy. Does he? Ha- oh, very, I, like, I have to stopped hunt. paying. It, <gasps> I have stopped paying attention to him. I bet you're right. Oh no. I, I, I think there was some controversy with like the church that he goes yes, to or that. something yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. And I think he was like, well, you know, it's just my church. And I'm like, yeah, but you keep going. <laughs> so that's it. Like, I don't want an actor in that role saying no. really racist you things so right. that you're like, does he believe it? You're so right. <laughs> but this is all allegedly. Please, if you're a, a Chris uh, Pratt stan, don't don't come after More importantly, <laughs> if you're a Chris Pratt lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Please don't come after us. This is all alleged. This is just oh, feeling. All vibe that I get. <sighs> Uh, so, so Lovecraft we're Country. Dive into the first section of Lovecraft Country. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to take a loose plot summary as it begins? Um, yes. All right. So it is the 1950s. Um, Atticus has just returned from the Korean War. Um, he's back from service. And he's driving back home because he's got a letter from his father about his um, family history and his mother's people. And his father has spent a lot of time kind of delving into her genealogy and finding out where she's from. So Atticus is making his way home. And right away, we kind of get a sense for what it would be like for a black person to be driving across the country at that time. He mm-hmm. has his copy of the Safe Negro Travel Guide with him, which is supposed to act as a guide that will help him know motels and restaurants that he can stop off safely without being harassed. But pretty much right away, um, he has a tire go out and uh, he walks two miles into town, but he immediately gets to a car repair place run by white people who will not sell him a tire. So he has to wait for hours to get a tire pulled up. Um, While he's doing that, he's reading the kind of science fiction and fantasy stories that he likes. I believe he's reading The Martian Chronicles. My Um, favorite book. Yep. Mm. And uh, um, he gets taken in by some very nice people. He explains his situation to them. He uh, finally makes it home where he, which is um, home in Chicago. He makes it home. Um, He uh, talks to his friend, George, 
Uncle. Uncle George. Sorry. Um, okay. Uncle George, who... But also his friend. They also seem his to friend. Have yeah. Friend and uncle. Yeah. 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 Um, they share a little bit about their love for these fantasy stories and Lovecraft, but they also talk about how, as a Black person in America, those stories can break your heart. And mm-hmm. how sad he was when he realized that the people they were uh, fighting against in Tarzan were all the people who looked like him. Mm-hmm. So... I feel like... This could be a good time to then to talk about what what we have with this. I thought it's a really great, scary opener. Yeah. 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 What, what did you guys make? Karama, I, I do want to turn to you. Obviously, you're the only black person in this group, and I'm interested in your yes. perspective. Listeners, on what, you can't see me, but I'm black. And <laughs> what it was like to experience reading, you know, this this incredibly visceral and scary first-hand account of racism. Not an actual first-hand account, a fictionalized first-hand Right. So on that note, I feel weird about Matt Ruff being a white person and writing this book. I'm not saying that he is... Everyone is entitled to write whatever they want. And I also think that any reader is entitled to critique that and decide who is telling what stories. Um, so I did appreciate that it was written in the third person. That was kind of like my, okay, okay, we can just pretend that it's not a white dude writing it. Um, I didn't think that the beginning was that scary because it didn't feel like fiction to me. It was like, oh yeah, this happens. And like, I've had my tire blow out on the side of the road in the middle of the night. And I was very scared, not because I was like, oh, um, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I was like, I really need to make sure that nobody thinks that I am here for nefarious reasons. Mm-hmm. And I, there's no real way to call for help. I mean, there are stories these days, like in the 21st century, not in the 1950s, of Black people who have gone to people's houses and asked for help and been like shot in the face. So... Mm-hmm. Stuff like that does happen today. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is this this is right. So I I don't know. I didn't think it was that scary because it was a scary that was a real scary. It's like, yeah, it was regular scary to me. I, I thought it was interesting. The, the whole conceit of this book is taking the beloved genre of sci-fi, which is problematic when you look at who was writing it and some of the things they were writing and challenging it in a critical lens, but from a place of love, mm-hmm. which I appreciate because I am someone, I love science fiction. I grew yeah, up reading that. My first like big heartbreak, I remember was reading Ender's Game, which is a book that I still love. And then finding out that the author Orson Scott Card is like, not even allegedly, like actually just like the world's worst person, like the most homophobic mm. person in the world. And it's just, it, it is like a weird heartbreak of like, oh my God, this person who like spoke to my heart in such a visceral way, they're, they're bad. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people are kind of going through yeah. that with yeah, Harry Potter out, right now. Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. Look, God. Margaret Atwood is just holding in there strong. I think, uh, I think she is still a relentlessly good person. So Fingers crossed that Margaret Atwood just makes it across the finish line without saying anything horrible. Yeah, well, I met her once, and actually, I met her twice, two days in a row. <laughs> and she complimented my phone case. And, okay. Uh, yeah. 
It's a You're safe. Yeah. Yeah. That would say. She Maggie. seemed real great. <laughs> I she also met her once and told her that um, The Handmaid's Tale was my favorite book. And she asked if we could get a picture together. And oh it was God. very, very sweet and very nice. So Aww. fingers crossed, yeah. Margaret okay. Atwood continues to be unproblematic. Yeah, I, Margaret, keep up the good work. Keep it doing what you're doing. Good for you, Margaret Atwood. But it's like, I, I, I appreciate the effort and energy and attention of recognizing that like yeah. the, the established genre tropes of sci-fi are often rooted in colonialism and imperialism and racism and being like, well, how do we reckon with that in a, in a mm-hmm. way that seems interesting? Yeah, well, it's it is. It's not, I mean, it's not just siloed to sci-fi either. Like, no. I think there's this one section that was very Atticus was talking to Uncle George, George or maybe it was even Earl when they were talking about how just like they would read these stories and like not, you know, it, it would be white characters like the default and you wouldn't even like question that. And I feel like growing up as a kid of color, like that's what you I mean, like those are all the books I read. All my heroines and heroes were like white people. And you then rec- like you look back and you're like, ah, oh. It would have well, been cool if there were stories that represented all of us. It is. I mean, I I didn't read as much sci-fi, but I watch a lot of it and a lot of horror. I'm a big horror fan. And, you know, it's all this fear-based stuff. And if it's written and directed by white people, it's like, what were they afraid of in mm-hmm. the 20s? And thir- like there is the first zombie Immigrants. movie is called <laughs> yeah. White Zombie. And it's about a um, voodoo and like, you know, all these white people being under voodoo. It's like very explicitly being like, we are afraid of black people. It's insane. But I do feel like what you're saying with this book and with, you know, I know he is not, he is white, Matt Ruff, but I think newer sci-fi and genre writers are flipping that and like using like Jordan Peele. I'm so excited to see the Mm -hmm. series. Like, inverting it of like the fears of of uh black people and and not white people or women and invisible man like there's just so i'm really excited how the genre has completely taken a turn and i like tian the way you pointed out that like white is so often seen as the default that you i noticed in this book that whenever there is a white character, he specifies that they're white. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it's the opposite, that like black is the default in this book. Mm-hmm. And if it's a white person, he says white person. Which and that all the white some... people are terrifying in this yeah. book. They're all they um, monsters. Yeah. Or, or just scare. Like, like you're just not sure what's going to happen. And that's usually the reverse in, you know. There's the one that was okay, I think. Uh, Which one? William. Yeah, no, like, I, I but know. I was terrified of William when he me. came in. I'm I, not sure he counts yeah, as a nice He turned person? out no, to I be didn't say okay. nice. I said okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just following he's, orders. He's but, but creeping me what, out. And what I loved was he's they creeping. people like William. You, it felt suspenseful because he was so nice to them and treated them in a way that was not normal so it's like something's fucking up you know and (sighs) thankfully he was on the right side but you know yeah you're like he's too nice what is he no no no. i worry that i just like good manners so much but i was more you would be taken and sacrificed jennifer immediately yes i would have i would have taken the pretty dress 
and said, this is so uh, lovely. We are all here. having a good time here. What <laughs> other good times will we have together in <laughs> your special room? We are getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, okay. also, yes. Jen, I think that part of that is because you are white, so you yeah. would feel yeah. comfortable in that space. Absolutely true. Um, I Girl. think the part of this that was very foreign to my experience was the idea that you would have a tire break and go to an auto repair shop and people would not be nice to you um, and they would yeah. not take your money. That is a very foreign experience for white people, I think. Uh, Karama, will you take the next section of the plot? We have the police encounter mm-hmm. with, with Atticus the first time, but then he arrives in Chicago and, and gets his mission Yes. So he, uh, so Atticus arrives in Chicago. He goes to Uncle George's office and hangs out with him. We find out that Uncle George has a wife named Hippolyta and then a child named Jupiter. Did I make that up? The child has like the dorkiest name in the world, but I found it adorable. Horace. 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 That's worse. I feel, it's a dark I feel name. the same way, girl. <laughs> So uh, we go to Uncle George's in Chicago. Um, It is his office where he does the uh, travel guide. And we find out that Uncle George has a wife named Hippolyta and a son named Horace, which... uh, Wow, you remember that off the dome. I did remember that off the dome. There was no recall needed. Um, (laughs) And uh, we learn a little bit about... The fact that uh, Montrose and uh, and Atticus have some tension, and we learned that before uh, he went off to war and he enlisted. Uh, so before he enlisted to go to the army and fight in Korea, they had a fight, and Montrose was like pissed. And uh, then while he was gone, he wouldn't even mention him. He wanted to know if he was okay. So he would hang out with Uncle George, but then not (laughs) ask about him and wait for Uncle George to say something. And if Uncle George didn't say anything, he would just kind of hang out at his house until he said something, which I think is adorable, toxic masculinity. (laughs) (laughs) They both are are trying to deal with racism in in opposite ways with Mm. George. I got the sense of sort of trying to adapt to the system by making his travel guide and saying, all right, how do we do this in a livable way where Montrose is more, uh, not anti-militaristic, but more takes a harder line of like, no, if you fight, that is for this racist institution. I mean, yeah. Montrose is very clearly on the side of fuck white people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they yeah. make Montrose that very clear. Fiction. So we learn a little bit about that tension between them and that when, uh, after a year of fighting in Korea, Atticus came back, he was going to do an interview with a magazine about being a black soldier who had enlisted. And that's sort of when their relationship really fell apart, blew to smithereens, because he was like, it's bad enough that you did this to yourself and you want to fight for these people who would not fight for you. But Mm -hmm. now you're going to go and encourage other black people to throw their lives away and do that? I don't think so. And then they got into a physical altercation. I think it's also worth mentioning at this point that... um, Atticus's mother is deceased. And so there is sort of no buffer between them. And I feel like she, based on what we've read in the book, she was sort of that buffer between them for their relationship. Um, So they get into a physical fight and then he hasn't seen his father since then, is my understanding. Mm -hmm. And then he gets this postcard that's like, come home, you have an inheritance, you have a legacy that is yours, you must come home and meet me in Artem. 
And there's this whole thing where the D in Artem looks like a K, so he thinks it's Arkham, which is from a Lovecraft story. Also Mm -hmm. is the name that they use for uh, the prison for the criminally insane in the DC universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's where that comes from. And Atticus makes this decision to go and follow his father. uh, And George says he'll come with him because he wants to find some more stuff for the guide. And they realize that this county, Devon County, where Artem is located, is a sundown county, which is way more terrifying than a sundown town. And uh, a sundown town, for anybody who's never heard of it, is a place where if you are a person of color, uh, in this instance, particularly Black people, you do not want to be there when the sun goes down. Basically, when the sun goes down, all bets are off. You will be murdered. Uh Fun times. So I think that's a good place to stop. Yeah. Ooh, that is, uh, this, I mean, it's like, I feel like, unfortunately, many white people's, or hopefully not first, but uh, maybe most popular culture familiarity with the idea of like a guide is from Green, Green Book. Green Book. I kept I know, thinking I about it while we were reading this. I am very glad that this is yeah. not the experience that they had to teach uh, Vigo Mortensen how to be a slightly less racist person. <laughs> yeah, it was a relief to uh, at least read this book, even though it was written by a white man, that it's all black characters dealing with this and that it is being adapted by black people into a miniseries mm-hmm. that will hopefully reach a lot of people <laughs> and yeah. be a more nuanced depiction than mm-hmm. Green Book. Mm-hmm. And just so that people have an understanding of sundown towns, these did not just exist in the South. And I think that's something that's really important about this book is that it's very much about Northern racism. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it is like Burbank, California was a sundown town. And uh, yeah, it's a lovely town now. You can go there. And you can, I've been there after the sundown. I've been to many of their AMCs. They have three AMCs, which is two. <laughs> they many. have a lot of movie theaters in Berkeley. <laughs> I think it's so interesting that this book is dealing with the racism of the North. Because when I was talking to a few friends that I was going to be reading this book, almost every single one of them, without fail, was like, oh, is that the sci-fi about Jim Crow South? Because it just like... Yeah, roll, it like it rolls off people's tongues, thinking that that mm-hmm. is like a thing that is just, you know, like stuck in the south. And it was like, no, it's. I mean, our whole country was, is racist. Yeah, yeah a lot of people like to think it was it just in four states one thousand years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and H.P. Lovecraft, who is himself a racist, um, yeah. is from, and he's dead, so his lawyers can't come after us. Um, so <laughs> he also, if they say if they come after us for saying H.P. Lovecraft is racist, uh, I feel like we could pull yeah, out. Yeah, we seats. have a lot to back <laughs> back claim. Even in the book, in the book, also, there yeah. is, if the Lovecraft family estate has listened to us, I'd be like, okay, <laughs> thank you for thank listening. You for listening. <laughs> Um, so H.P. Lovecraft is from Providence, Rhode Island, a place where mm-hmm. Dana and I both lived for several years. And that's where we met. Um, so like the North. And I will say I loved living in Providence. But again, they're changing their name from the state of Rhode Island and Providence plantations to not that because bad and how there was a vote on it many years ago and they were like it's too much of a bother and as a black person living in rhode island at the time i was like oh okay mm-hmm. i see you so i feel like it's really important to talk about northern racism also known as racism yeah, yeah. And, 
And it's like with, with somewhere like Rhode Island, I feel like people are very proud of Rhode Island's like bona fides that it was founded by like Roger Williams. It's like a very accepting abolitionist place. And sometimes if you're just like, well, that's good, we're done. And then that's not how racism works. And I also think it's important to talk about when we talk about abolitionists, we're like, oh, they didn't want slavery. So they were not racist. And I'm like, no, no. No, no, no. Yeah. The fact right. that they did not think that Black people should f- actually be, be property <laughs> does not mean that they thought Black people were chill, cool friends that they would want, like, their families to be integrated with. Right. They were still like, ooh, yeah, I don't really think that they should be here, but they certainly shouldn't be property. That's bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in Lovecraft Country, the book, I believe it is Devon County, which is sat right just south of New Hampshire. And it's basically the only way through to this tiny, tiny town, Arkham. Mm-hmm. Um, Artem. Through- Artem. Sorry, yes, that is the that is the mistake they make. D's and K's and apparently look very similar. So in, And they have to go through Devon County and because I can't go the other way because it's too wooded and too tiny of a road. And Devon County uh, was founded by the people who are too extreme for the Puritans. Just like the real crazy, the people who, not the, not the people who uh, were witches that were hunted, but the people who hunted witches and were proud of it. They're like, yeah, so gosh darn like, witches. Hmm, we're going to get so, you, Sabrina. <laughs> so just really, really bad uh, New England racism. Mm-hmm. And your your classic racist, your classic New England racism. Like, it's almost a cliche. (laughs) And I mean, and that New England racism also still exists today. In talking about all of this, I don't think that it is necessarily necessary for every piece of media to go into, like, we are going to talk about toxic masculinity. But I do think that if you are going to show toxic masculinity, you need to, in some way, at least have one character address the toxic masculinity. So we're on this road trip with, it's George, it's Atticus, and it's Atticus's childhood friend, Letitia, who is saying, I'm going to come along to uh, stop over and be with my brother, but I want to come along with you. The the event that I want to talk about on this trip uh, is what happens when they stop in a dinette that George is like, oh, a friend told me that it's fine, that it's it's good for black people and it's going to be safe for us. And they pull in and Atticus is like, I don't like the look of this. And George is like, it's going to be fine. And that's where I was like, that's where, I just want to say that's where I was like a white person wrote this because I don't think none of them would have gotten out of that fucking yeah. car. Well, <laughs> George is told by a friend that there is a diner that is in this town. What is this town called again? This small mass? Is Simmons, it a small? Simmonsville. Simmonsville. That's right. Simmonsville. Just like on, on the way. On the way town. And as they roll up already, they see like a fireman or a guy outside the fire station. And he's kind of staring. It's a white guy in suspenders. Red flag. And he's <laughs> and he's like kind of already giving them the eye and it's making Atticus uncomfortable. But George is like, no, this diner is going to be great. I've heard great things. It's a red brick building like it's going to be fine. Don't worry. They get to the outside of the diner and it's white, painted white. Mm-hmm. And Atticus is like, ah, you said this was going to be a red diner. And Uncle George is kind of like, oh, maybe they remodeled. Like he's like, we're going to go into this. <laughs> Maybe they had like a different taste. They wanted to change the vibe. So they go in and there's already like um, a patron at the counter 
an older white man. And as soon as Uncle George, Atticus, and Leticia walk in, he, like, slams the table and runs out. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Slam the table and runs out. And there's just the only person that's working the diner is this, like, teenage. Yeah, no, he's just like, no! Yeah, he's the old guy's like, no, and I'm it is out. And then the teenager is this like this little white boy who doesn't say a word, is just like completely silent. Already I'm scared. I'm like, this is mm-hmm. this feels like children of the corn vibes in this month. Like he's just like not mm-hmm. saying anything. They're being the like George is being very polite, overly polite, is like just being very kind, being a human person <laughs> and is trying to get food ordered. And Letitia goes back to the bathroom and then MVP of this chapter, by oh, the way. Oh, yes, MVP exactly. of the Book whole the whole short whole story section. so far. Yeah. 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 I know she must not be named, but Letitia's <clears throat> giving me like in the trifecta of friends and the the uh, like Two dudes and a woman, Hermione vibes, just like yeah. mm-hmm. so much Hermione vibes, <laughs> like saving their asses multiple times all the time. Um, and so they're sitting there and I think I think the little boy like goes to the back and makes a phone call and mm-hmm. George and Atticus are still up in the front and they don't know that this is happening. And as they're waiting, the cop, there's like a cop that pulls up and several firemen that pull up and the guy that was there before that had walked out. And mm-hmm. they start approaching uh, the diner, looking like they're going to be extremely violent. And Atticus is like, okay, I will I can fucking take a bunch of these dudes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then as they're approaching the diner, they get distracted by something. Yeah, Letitia released a horse so that she could <laughs> cause a distraction yeah. so that they could escape because she was in the restroom and she overheard the little teenager dude on the phone. He's like, black people have taken over the diner. Yeah, they're like, they're, like, they're so literally scary. sitting there asking oh, to yeah. pay for coffee. They're yeah, very polite. That, Something the is very, off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did that that central part, call the call the cops and tell them that a black person is is assaulting you. Is yeah. Yeah. They Amy Cooper yeah. it. They really she Amy Cooper totally it. Really <laughs> Cooper it. And I believe and the cops start shooting. Yeah, oh, hightail yeah. it out. Oh, yeah. And yeah, they shoot. Yes. They start shooting oh, yeah. after them. And so Atticus takes a revolver and starts to shoot back. And then all of a sudden, a silver car that only seemingly maybe only Atticus and George and Leticia see and it like side swipes or like cuts in front of the police and the fire truck and like just crap like leads to like a huge crash accident. Yeah. I, in, I feel like the fire was, truck flips, right? Fl- yeah. Flip? yeah. This section of the book was directed by Michael Bay. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. fast, very fast and furious, very, very transformers. Um, and they are able to get away. I very rarely feel like I will enjoy the TV or movie of a book more than I enjoy the book itself. I feel like that might be true with this TV show. It is all action all the time. Mm -hmm. They are always running away from someone or in some sort of extreme distress. I feel like it's going to adapt into a very thrilling TV show. Yeah. It's a lot of tension, it's a lot of action, and those are both things that horror comedy television does really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can you can see I mean you can see it, especially since you know 
like Jordan Peele's involved and the actors, it's like, oh, this is going to be so good. I need a breather. Okay, maybe we can take a little break here. Sounds good. This is Popcorn Book Club. We'll be right back after this quick break. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Okay, we're back with Popcorn Book Club. So I feel like the next... The next major event we hit is the sheriff in Devon County. Which will be like the fourth cop in this first, this is our fourth cop interaction in this in like first hundred pages already. Yeah. Well, also Mm -hmm. there was a part where Uncle George was talking about his friend who had been in Devon County and that's how we knew it was a sundown county because Mm -hmm. he had had an altercation with a police officer there so I was like, no, that happened already. But there are two sheriff encounters in Devon yeah, County. Yeah. Truly, that the scariest story uh, about the friend who was reporting something for the guide, and the sheriff basically was trying to trick him so he could murder him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was like, and like, he was like playing with him for fun. And running out the clock so that yeah. he could um, kill him. I will uh, say, I'm impressed that he just knew what time sundown was. The police yeah. officer. When you want to murder someone really bad, yeah. you look it up every day. Yeah, when you have a, when that's the time of murder, it's like the purge, you know. Yeah, yeah. it is like Ugh. the purge. You're right. It's terrible. But so then, or like our, Shabbat. Yes, there's people do know what sh- it's not like Shabbat because we don't. Uh, no, there's no people. murder in Shabbat. There's no crying but in baseball. There's what? no murder in Shabbat. Put <laughs> that on the but record you know- that it is not like Shabbat. In that when it is sundown, Jews do not indiscriminately shoot black people. No, 
oh, they have lovely dinners and say prayers and spend time with their family away from technology. They, it's beautiful. But they they probably know when sundown is. The sun is, is going down. So that yeah, that's can, what I mean. You know, make them, they know that that time. All year round. Karama, you want to take it with, with our our trio and the car and the sheriff? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, well, first, before we get mm-hmm. to the sheriff, we go to Letitia's brother's house. Yeah. And uh, that is where they are supposed to part ways. And Letitia's like, the fuck you mean we're parting ways? I'm coming with you. And mm-hmm. they're like, no, you're a girl, which happens mm-hmm. a lot in this chapter. And mm-hmm. she's like, but you think that you're just safe by coincidence? I've been chosen yeah. by God to keep you safe. And her brother's like, yeah, she does that. Our mom used to do that. It's a super weird thing that they do to manipulate people. And she's like, mm, no, it's not. I, I believe just- it. Oh, yeah, I no, think- I'm on board. There I mean, is she's literal magic in this chapter. I yeah. think that is the least crazy statement. I am just saying what the brother said. <laughs> I am with y'all. But uh, so they decide, they're like, okay, how do we do this? What are the logistics of getting safely through Devon County so that we can get to Artem, so that we can find uh, Montrose and figure out things about uh, my mother. Um, not mm-hmm. my Karama's mother, but Atticus's mother. Um, my mother is not involved <laughs> in this book at all. <laughs> uh, so they're figuring out logistics. They decide they're going to leave at like two in the morning so that everybody's still asleep when they get there. And then when the sun comes up and people are waking up, they're already there and there's nothing anybody can do. Uh, which in theory mm-hmm. is a great plan, but racists are, racism doesn't sleep, apparently. Yeah, racism does not sleep. <laughs> so they get up, they're like, Letitia has, is not coming out to say goodbye. We get it, she's angry. So they leave, they take advantage of this plan, they go in the night, and they realize that they're not going to outsmart anybody. And there are a lot of lights, too. And they're like, oh, every time we drive through one of these lights, we feel super conspicuous and uh, ready to kill. Uh, ready to be killed, rather. Um, so the sheriff stops them as they're turning onto a dirt road to try and leave this, this tiny town, which is not a real town uh, in Massachusetts. It was a uh, fake it's Byford? town. Yeah, B- Biddeford yeah. or Biddeford? whatever. Yeah. I, I looked up different spellings of it because it is based on a real town in England where they did do the last of the witch killings and they there was oh. a woman who was killed for sleeping with a black man. She was like, oh, she slept with a black man who was the devil. And they're like, kill her. And I'm like, oh, I don't like that. There were a lot of times where I was reading the book and I said, oh, I don't like that at all. Uh, <laughs> so Biddeford, they were driving through Biddeford and... Uh, the police stop them on their way out of Biddeford and they're like, oh, <laughs> you thought you could get away? And then they accuse them of a series of robberies. And they're like, we don't know anything about the robberies. He's like, I thought you were going to say that. That's just what someone who did a robbery would say. <laughs> and so he is like, Atticus is like to the cop, look, you can search our car, which pisses the cop off even more. Because he's like, mm-hmm. you want to give me permission to search your car? And I'm like, that's literally in the Constitution, but sure. Um, <laughs> um, can't do unlawful search and seizure. It's the Fourth Amendment. Boom. Um, so then they then they try and explain themselves. And Atticus is like, we are invited guests in Artem. And we're going to the manor house at the top of the hill. My last name's Turner. Uh, I got people there. My dad is there. And he's like, that's a lie. You're lying. We're going to, you know what? We'll take you to Artem. And then he takes them into the woods and they're going to shoot them. And then magic happens. 
and there's some sort of darkness that appears of the darkness and it takes out some of the deputies and then Letitia, who has hidden herself in the trunk, which is why she didn't say goodbye. She was like, there is no goodbye. (laughs) Uh, She gets out and she like wallops the sheriff over the head with a gas canister and sets their car, the patrol car on fire because that's what God asked her to do. MVP. Truly. (laughs) She is not wrong. She's yeah. like, I'm here to protect you. They'd God be dead me without to. her. They would be dead. She saves them. Two times I'm over. glad she got her, spoiler, but I'm glad she got her dresses in the end. I'm oh my gosh, very glad she got her dresses. Yeah, she deserves them. She's going to rock them. I don't know where, yeah. but she's going to do it. Uh, yeah. So I think that's a good stopping point. They end up escaping from the police because of a combined darkness, which they explain to Letitia as grizzly bears, but they're like, those were not bears. And not bears. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and then Letitia setting the cop car on fire and attacking the police officer because he did not know she was there because no one knew she was there except her this, and Jesus. It's this interesting tension because all of the supernatural stuff has sort of eerily been helping them in terms of like the things mm-hmm. that you think you should be scared of, like this creepy darkness and this silver car that appears out of nowhere, like they're sinister, mm-hmm. but then you're like, oh, they're helping. And the really scary things are just the non-sci-fi, like the the realistic things, like mm-hmm. the racist cops, which mm-hmm. exist. Yes, yeah. I found myself scary, hoping yeah. that the ghost car would show up for this entire time because it seems to be on their side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt like the that cop was the most, I mean, I know there's other stuff that comes, but was the most outwardly terrifying character. Mm-hmm. Like, we'll talk about um, the rest of it in a bit, but, like, there was politeness in other places, and this was just, like, pure hatred in a way that is so visceral and um, terrifying. And even later, the the people we'll get to with the, the order... Um, their racism seems um, based out of like a convenience. Like they're all racist, but they're like, look, we're killing you, not because we specifically hate you, but because we need to in this way where like the sheriff seemed to take weird special racist glee in it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think as far, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but as far as those people are concerned, what they are doing is necessary and they are making a sacrifice for some kind of noble religious cause. The sheriff wants to kill this man for no particular reason, like other than he's very racist and thinks it would be fun to kill a black man for no mm-hmm. reason. And it's like, I think they're, they're interesting, different flavors of racism. <laughs> Not interesting. Part of it is I'm reading right now for Noble Blood, my other podcast about Leopold II in the Congo. Mm-hmm. And he oh. killed, uh, some people estimate 10 million uh, people, men and men and women and children in the Congo. And then some historians are like, well, that wasn't quite a genocide because he did it out of greed. He just like worked them to death. And if they didn't work hard enough, killed them. No, and that's still genocide. Yeah, well, some you can't tell, but like, Karama is just like <laughs> going closer and closer to the camera. With the, I just, yeah. the am, I, am I unfamiliar re- with the word genocide? Like, Gen- what does that mean? <laughs> no, I know. And I'm reading it and they're like, oh, well, it wasn't like he just wanted to like murder them on an ideology. And you're like reading it. And you're no, like, that is- isn't. Isn't an ideology that, like, my rubber profit is worth more yeah. than your lives as human beings? Their lives is entirely ideology? disposable. 
I think the upsetting thing about making that genocide in the eyes of some historians is that we'd have a lot more genocides on our hands. Yes. If we uh, if we did that, and people, I'm shrugging. That, that people <laughs> love genocide, but more than genocide, they love saying the things that weren't that were genocides were not genocides. So sorry. In this comparison, mm-hmm. what I guess I'm saying is the people doing the order felt more Leopold II evil to me, which is sort of like the banality of evil. Like it's business, it's business. We're you know murdering people mm-hmm. for money. Or profit or magic, mm-hmm. whereas like the magic the, is a vulgar word. The, Dana. the, the, the sheriff <laughs> is maybe more like like Hitler evil. If that comparison tracks, well, we will. Those also, those I, have more very I have more I have yeah. Yeah. Either way, it's like bad, bad across the board. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The the means do not. It's not no <laughs> no means no no end no yeah. means no justification bad <laughs> but there is a moment too that in the book attic like in that moment atticus is like y- you get a glimpse he's like oh my god why did those weird monsters not attack us i'm not gonna dwell on it but why did they yeah. not attack us i won't think of it again <laughs> like he's yeah he literally it, says uh grizzly bear ate them atticus replied trying not to dwell on the next question why them and not us, not us. yeah Grizzly bears are not racist. But what's so nice after this is that they get to go to the manor home, and it is lovely. Boy, what a great place to go. Um, They're met by William the butler. They do have, like, only a slightly sinister experience. Okay, Jennifer, take away the manor. Thank you. Um, I was very, very excited. They are met by William, a lovely butler who is incredibly polite to them. He takes... Atticus up to his room, and his room has all of Atticus's favorite books. They also have a lovely change of clothes for Atticus in the closet in case he wants to dress for dinner. But also, they can have all of their meals brought up to their rooms. George is super into that. George is very excited about not having to leave their rooms, just hanging out, eating food safely, as they cannot do in a diner. I completely understand where George is coming from there. Uh, Letitia is very excited because her closet is filled with ball gowns. They fit her perfectly. Uh, she tries on a beautiful ball gown, which I've seen a preview of in the HBO show. I'm Ooh. very excited is it to purple? see it on that actress. Yes, it's purple. It's lovely. So basically, everything is great. No problems. Except the end. <laughs> Except Montrose ever after. Montrose okay, Montrose is not oh, yeah. there. They, they do that sort of like brush off thing of like, oh, he oh, he went to town. They say he yes. can see his room if they want to, but that but doesn't seem like it would help so tell me where somebody like, is. They were like, I, I can get the key. And then Atticus was like, I trust you, which was definitely a lie. Yes. <laughs> Which I appreciate because well, I was which like, is, is fair because William is lying, so they're both lying. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes, there is can, lies. I yeah, can Melissa, pick it up from there unless yeah. we want to. Okay, Melissa, take it away. So Atticus is like, no way, this something, this is not right. And George is like, I don't know, I this is pretty comfy to me. And Letitia's really into her dress, but she's you know down to you know, search. So they want to find, Atticus wants to find his father. He does not believe that he's in Boston with Mr. Braithwaite. Is that how you, Braithwaite? So they 
it, it, what the the lie was he's in Boston with uh, Montrose is in Boston with Mr. Braithwaite until the tonight or the morning. And so uh, Atticus is like, that's not true. We got to go find him. It's like, where would he be? Well, there's this village type of thing um, that the Artemites, I believe, or Adamites, Adamites live in. And they are simple folk, as they keep saying. Um, and they're like Amish, Amish adjacent. Um, <laughs> but they're simple. like older and- than the Amish, right? Yeah, they're older than the Amish. They're uh, simple also, in that they're li- not, not simple in uh, they're simple in that they just have simple needs, right? They mm-hmm. they act like the Amish. They don't need electricity or anything like that. Um, they're, but they're all like indentured very, servants, right? They're they, like, yes, don't get yeah. paid. They just it they feels are, like a very feudal kingdom. Yes, exactly. Uh, And they are able to live on Mr. Braithwaite's expansive property and offer protection. And all they have to do in exchange is toil um, for Mr. Braithwaite's estate constantly. Uh, So one could say that everybody was surfing USA? S-E-R-F-A-E. How long you been holding on to that one? Like 30 seconds. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty good. Thank you. Uh, and they're also very, everyone is very pale. Like they're, they describe William as almost albino. Um, and then Dell, who we meet in the town, is looks like his, uh, his sister. So they go into the town, they go into this church, and they see this uh, stained glass window uh, 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 image of Adam and Eve. But there's no snake and there's no uh, apple. They are just fucking. It's like a pornographic. Yes, it's like baby. a pornographic stained glass window. That's um, creation porn, okay? I know. Who'd have thought? Rule thirty four. Uh, it exists porn, somewhere. The porn industry had thought. Obviously, there yes. must be Adam and Eve porn. Um, but never in a stained glass window, you know. Um, so then they go outside, then they try, there's this really ominous looking building and they knock on the door and this woman, Dell, who looks curiously like the, the Eve in the stained glass, um, and she like runs the town a little bit and she's like, what are you guys doing here? And they want to see what this place is. It's like a butcher shop, kind of. It's like where all the animals... Like the manger, right? It's like no, oh, they're yes. carcasses, though. Oh yeah, yeah. they're, but they're also seems like a, dogs a little combo. Around. But they specify <laughs> that the animals make noise because I feel like Atticus is smart and he's like, well, if my dad is in there, they need to cover the the noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. yes. And then they Dell's like, let me take you and give you a little tour. And so she basically kicks them out of town and. And I was like, okay, goodbye. And then as soon as Dell leaves, they try to get into uh, another area to look for Montrose. But then dogs come out and look like they might attack. And Dell sees them and they head back up being like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't. I was lost. And uh, then they go back up, I believe, to the manor house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's dinner time, right? Yes. Oh, the other great detail was that um, Letitia is wearing this Cinderella, purple Cinderella dress, and they want to bring their gun, right? Is it the gun that yeah. they want to bring? Oh, yeah. And then he doesn't know. He's like, I got to get my jacket. She's like, I got it. And she just hides it. 
somewhere. And he's like, whoa, oh, oh I have feelings. Uh, anyway, I lo- that was a sh- she's, she's the, the best. best. I, I feel like Atticus is a very good observer and very good yes. at deductive logical reasoning. Um, and so he, from like being in this house, he stole, uh, he realized that probably by accident, there was a rule book left in his yes. room that was about the order of the ancient dawn, uh, which is just like a secret cabal that was founded uh, by uh, a Braithwaite, Braithwaite, and I, I don't remember which, but the, the Braithwaite great, ancestor. Great, great, great grandfather. Yeah, who was sort of like 1700s. an alchemist. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sort of puts two and two together, but we, the, the reader doesn't become privy to this yet. But he is uh, goes down to dinner, and while they're eating, the other white, old white members of the Order of the Ancient Dawn start arriving. And I feel like Atticus sort of begins to put two and two together in a in a logical way that he's there for a reason. His mom's ancestors that the dad had talked about, um, she had been a slave that was owned by a Braithwaite, and. He mm-hmm. deduces that uh, she had been raped and impregnated and it and ran away. And it makes sense then that he would be an ancestor. And he uh, then basically does a a thing at dinner. Karama, do you want to take it from, from there? Well, I actually wanted to talk about the thing with Dell really quickly because oh, there was a yeah. section that I underlined, which I don't do super often, uh, there's a section where Dell is having a conversation with the the trio, and they mention grizzly bears uh, because Atticus mm-hmm. was like, "Oh, we heard there were grizzlies out in the woods." And Dell snorted, "No, no grizzlies, just black bears." She said, adding lightly, "But the blacks are bad enough. They're smart, not smart, smart. They're beasts, but clever enough to cause mischief, right. and they're persistent. Oh. We use dogs to drive them off." But sometimes they won't quit, even after they've been hurt. Those ones do end up in here after a fashion. And that's one of those times where I was like, oh, I don't like that. Um, It felt very insidious in the same vein as in the movie Get Out, when the dad is talking about Mm -hmm. the deer and how if you don't kill the deer, they'll take over. And uh, I did feel very much like uh, Daniel Kaluuya's character in Get Out, where I was like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay, that's weird. And then it does and, pay off the next page where yeah. they're that's when they're looking around and they're like, oh, we got lost. And there's a dog that is barking to keep them away. And uh, it says the Mastiff stopped barking and Atticus looked over his shoulder. Dell had come back out on the workshop porch and was standing with her arms crossed, her lips curved in an openly contemptuous smile. Not smart, smart, he heard her say. We use dogs to drive them off. Yeah, Atticus mm. said. Okay. <laughs> which was very relatable. I was like, yeah, okay. But it also was very yeah. reminiscent of like civil rights protests where they would use dogs and spray water hoses at people, which is why it caught my eye at first. And then when it paid off the next page, I was like, oh, that was fast. <laughs> and also pays off in, in that paragraph is like, they end up in here. And it is spoiler revealed that that is, they were right. Uh, that is indeed where Montrose is being held. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yes. But do you want to take it from, from dinner, which I yeah. think is the next major event? Yes, so they get dressed for dinner, uh, and they wear their fancy clothes, which fit them perfectly. Eerie. W- which doesn't happen. Like, I know my size at Target. I buy that size. It doesn't fit. 
I have two things mm-hmm. from Target that are the same size that don't fit the same. So that is <laughs> the scariest part to me is that the clothes fit them perfectly. Uh, and they go down to dinner. William is like, I will escort you. And they're like, we could have gone down the stairs ourselves. And he's like, no, no, I will escort you because there are a lot of people who have come for a meeting, which also felt very good out to me. All the limos mm-hmm. driving up, bringing all of these white people mm-hmm. to a fancy gathering. And uh, Atticus basically clocks it. He's like, oh, you don't want us to, you don't want them to think that we're the help and be rude to us. And William's like, just come with me. It's fine. Uh, And so they go to dinner. They start eating. There's a young white man who comes in a little bit later. Uh, Most of the older people have already been there. And they were like frustrated that uh, the trio has been seated before them. And one even says, three, why are there three of them? Which And you're like, oh, something's going on. Yeah, they were expecting one of them. And that's not great either. (laughs) So uh, they sit down for dinner. Uh, After the first course, (laughs) Atticus says to his uncle George and Letitia, he's like, if you guys are hungry, you should eat right now because I'm going to start some shit. (laughs) And and he stands up and he's like, hey, everybody, my name is Atticus Turner. Uh, I am here because Mr. Braithwaite asked me to be. I don't know why, but I think you do. And I have a guess. I think that I am descended from ye old Braithwaite in the uh, in the portrait, in the entryway. And I read about this rule where anyone descended from him is not just a regular son of Adam. They are a son of son. So I'm real special and you have to listen to everything I say. And I'm just going to I'm just going to test this. So why don't you all go out on the lawn and leave me and my friends alone? And then there is silence. <laughs> And he's like, oh, shit, did I fuck this up? (laughs) Am I wrong? And you have this moment where you're like, oh, no, they're going to kill him. But then they Mm -hmm. all start getting up and going out on the lawn. And you're like, he was right. He is descended from ye old Braithwaite. Which which his mother had pretty much hinted at and told him not to tell his father. Because we know that his father, like, stick in his nose places where it maybe shouldn't be when it comes to genealogy. Um, So, and his mother had said, never trust anyone named Braithwaite. So I feel like that Mm -hmm. comes back to haunt him in this instance. (laughs) And so all the white people leave except for one, the young white guy who was late. And he's like, actually, the rules say that the oldest Braithwaite in the room is the one that everybody has to listen to. And that's me. I have a year on you. So you're like, oh, it's his cousin. Okay, cool. So then we are taken down to meet uh, the Braithwaite senior whose name is, I think, Samuel? Samuel Braithwaite? Samuel. And yeah. the, the younger one is Caleb. Yes, the younger man Caleb. is Caleb. They go down a service elevator, and Caleb is like, family only. So Braithwaite's only. And so we leave Letitia, and we leave Uncle George, and we go meet Samuel Braithwaite, who looks like, I think he said he looked like an accountant or a lawyer or something else where Someone you wear a suit mundane. and are boring. Yeah. 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 Not so to insult Alec any lawyers Baldwin. or <laughs> he looked like Alec Baldwin. <laughs> and uh and then he is very rude and brusque and is basically like, look, I don't like this. I don't like that it's you. I don't like that you're mm-hmm. black, but you are the closest thing to this dude, yield Braithwaite in the portrait that we have, and we need you to perform a ceremony. And Atticus is like, oh, so y'all doing magic? 
And he's like, magic is a vulgar word, but yes. Just like fancy. Rich people don't say fancy or magic. (laughs) (laughs) That reference reference is lost upon the listeners because they have not yet listened to the episode where we find out that fancy is a vulgar word. But keep listening and you'll get it. Um, So... It's a reverse uh, callback. Yeah. <laughs> it's a call front. Um, so we find out that the Order of Adam, the Adamites or whatever they are called, are trying to do some sort of... The Order of the Ancient Dawn. Yes, the Order of the Ancient Dawn, the members of whom call themselves Adamites and uh, anti-somethings. Anti-something. It's like before the fall. I think they're like anti-fells or something like that. And we also learned that their Christian mythology is different from, like, widely accepted Christian mythology. So they're kind of like, it it felt a little bit Mormon to me in that it was like, yeah, you guys all believe in the same dude. But also, that's not what everyone else learned. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that it felt like sort of, I don't want to say off-brand Christianity because I don't feel like, it felt like a very different sect. And even Mm -hmm. when they saw the stained glass window of Adam and Eve Uncle George said, well, they're not Baptist. <laughs> that is one of my favorite lines line. in the entire that book, was, too. That was my favorite really like that. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm Uncle say, George is real. <laughs> yeah. I'll say it. It felt a little culty. It also felt, it didn't feel oh. culty yet. Because oh. all religions feel a little bit culty when you break <laughs> them down to brass tacks. Uh, which is fine. We congregate as people and we have traditions and that's totally fine. It's later when it got culty because they were like, also, we need a sacrifice. It was, it yeah. was, a, it was culty mixed with the KKK, you know, because they call them wizards and they're yes. in robes mm-hmm. and they're trying to burn a black person. Like it yeah. was very, that was... Um, all very much in there. So, but I guess they're kind of a cult too. But I don't know what they believe. I they did not call themselves wizards. That was a word that Atticus oh, used. Oh, really? Yes. If I remember correctly, oh. Atticus was no, like, I think, they're oh, like wizards. I thought they, they're very like, they're the type of magic where it's did. like, they would, they're like alchemists. Like it's natural mm-hmm. philosophy. Yes. Like yeah. They think they're yeah, like, they keep saying, ugh, yeah. They're like, if you do magic, you can just wave a wand and anything can happen, which is not true. It's Uh. sort of like, did you read The Magicians, which is a book series I actually really like, but they're very specific in, like, what magic can do because you have to, like, mold elements in a certain way. Just like, and now I'm nerding out, but I do like science fiction fantasy, the, the book series Name of the Wind, if you read it. Mm-mm. No, I have friends. No. I'm not a nerd. <laughs> I'm joking. The magic in Name of the Wind is like basically as boring as science. And so it's like not any more fun than science. It's just like it's hard. chemistry. Yeah. It's chemistry. And it's just like different. I'm sorry to bring us back to Harry Potter, but I've always felt that nobody who enjoys reading the books Harry Potter would enjoy being in that school. It's just like a really (laughs) science-specific school that stops teaching any kind of English course after fourth grade. Um, (laughs) Those kids are all working on a very, very rudimentary level of reading. And it is why I think their whole town only has two newspapers and one of them is a crazy tabloid. (laughs) applied science you're right yeah no no creativity i know i'm done for now so i just want to take a break for a minute and i'm sure you guys need one too yeah just like a deep breath yes right absolutely 
You're listening to Popcorn Book Club from iHeartRadio, and we'll be back right after the break. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So we're back with Popcorn Book Club from iHeartRadio. Just to get back to the book for a second, yes. um, one thing you. we missed that I think is important is um, Atticus's great, great, great grandmother mm-hmm. who escaped, escaped oh, the Mr. Fire. Braithwaite yeah. because there was a huge fire and the, she she ran away during the fire and the fire was described as like all the colors of the rainbow and colors we have never seen before. And so I think I I just thought that was an important detail of like, she got out and now uh, he's back here. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And when he heard that story, he was like, Oh, was George was like, was she pregnant? And uh, apparently Atticus also asked that because when I read it, I also asked that. I was like, uh, she's pregnant, which she was. Yeah. We find that out. Uh, but the point was that you should not trust anyone named Braithwaite. That's not the point, yeah. whether or not they are mm-hmm. descended from Braithwaites. It is don't trust them. They have weird stuff going on. Don't go there. And also Montrose, when he finally saw Atticus there, was like, the one time I didn't want you to listen to me, you listened <laughs> to me. Oh, yeah, we have to talk about how he finally gets to see Montrose. Yes. Well, yeah. What is, happens next is they they come for Atticus. They're like, time for the ritual that I told you about. Oh, no, we and, skipped the, the Well, thing. not yet. No. The thing. He the demands. Thing. Yeah, he demands. Um, he demands to go see Montrose. Montrose. Yes, yeah. you're right. And they right. say, you know, if you stop bothering me about seeing your father, will you just leave me alone until the ritual? And like, yeah, totally. He says, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. 
Uh, yeah, does someone want to take how they get Montrose? Tien? Sure. Down? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you just got voluntold. No, I'm ready. So they, so they are. So Samuel tells them like not to cause any trouble, and of course they're like, okay, fuck that. We need to figure out like where's where is my dad? What is this place? What's going on? So they actually show them where. I think I think William tells right. William Del tells, takes them. Yeah, Dell takes them to where Montrose is being held, and he's being held in Dell's place. Um, there is a like kind of bigger guard dude that's also there and a scary dog and he's being Montrose is being held in Dell's basement and he is chained up to the basement and he gets there when he when Atticus gets down there Montrose is as Karama said so annoyed that he finally listened to him and was like Ugh, this is like truly the one time that I didn't want you to come get me because I knew it was going to get you into trouble. And look, you're here. You're so annoying. Why do you want to save me? <laughs> um, and they get into a, like a big fight and are, almost get into another physical fight between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Classic father, dad vibes between the two of them. But they stop and he's like, okay, let's get, let's get you out of here. So Atticus goes up punches out the dog then like then, maybe kills like, the dog like <laughs> maybe kills, kills the murders dog. the dog okay with a punch i'm I think like, it's like a just right straight in the face kills the dog then also punches out the guard throws him down the stairs and then i think also punches Dell and takes her down there as well yeah. and gets the keys from Dell, unlocks Montrose, and they head back up and he is kind of like, okay, we we just have to wait. I know that George and Letitia are going to show up. They just, they know that we're planning this. It's all, we're this is our great escape. They actually come back with the silver car, the spooky so silver smart. car. So smart. Comes, comes to pick Atticus and George up, or Atticus and Montrose up in the silver car. And as they are getting away, they're like, oh my gosh, we did it. I can't believe it. We have the dad. We're going to be leaving this town. And then the car stops moving at a certain point across the bridge. Mm-hmm. And Atticus gets out. They see that Caleb, uh, Samuel's son, is behind them and is walking toward them smiley creepy with a gun pointed right at them he's like totally chill not rushed at all he's just like trotting up as though he's like running in to see old friends again with a gun in his hand and Atticus gets out of the car to try and like fight back with the revolver but his legs stop moving and Caleb reaches him grabs the gun from him and then Montrose also gets out of the car to try to protect his son or fight back. And he stops moving as well. And then Caleb shoots Montrose in the chest with the gun. And that kind of like everyone screams. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of just shifts back to the manor. And Montrose is in the bedroom, but he has no wound but he tries to get up and can't move and is in excruciating pain where the where the shot would have been where the bullet would have been um and mm-hmm. so i think that's a good place so this is where we're like oh there is magic this is vulgar to yeah. say but a lot, of, a lot is, of is doing motherfucking magic there's a lot of magic yeah. going on 
And Caleb is yeah. kind of just like, I told you you shouldn't have tried to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I said the paralysis thing was very scary. I feel like that was the scariest to me, like the scariest magical part mm-hmm. of the I don't, I feel like there's something I have. I don't have sleep paralysis, but I have nightmares where I can't move, you know? And it's such a, it was such a visceral scene of like Montrose being frozen and his feet were like in cement and he was just watching his father get presumably killed. It was very mm-hmm. terrifying. And the, the the cutoff when he just goes, I told you, consequences. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. chilling. But yeah, weirdly, I, the next day, there are not many consequences, at least in the morning. It seems like his father has healed miraculously from the bullet wound, that yeah. this was all some sort of magical dream. And then, uh, but I was like, oh, my God, that's so smart. Letitia's always on the ball. She knew to steal a car. She knew to come. They were yeah. ready to go. Yeah, um, but they also had mentioned earlier that the car was not a known model it was like an invented car yeah, by them. Right. And I would not trust any car invented by a person that is not an established <laughs> inventor of cars. If you're, yeah. if you're making a getaway, you take what yeah. you can get. Yeah, take I'm taking a Ford. Front. I'm taking uh, um, like anything that honestly at this point probably just a Ford. But <laughs> I mean, they had said that Uncle George's car was like penned in by all those limousines. And all mm-hmm. I, when they when they said all I could think about was like, you know, that the puzzle at like the Brookstone store where like all the cars are in. Do you know what puzzle I'm talking about? And you have to try to move one car to the other side, but there's a oh, traffic jam. Oh, yeah. Yes. yes. I don't know no. why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking it's, about. It's one of those, like, yeah, brain, like, brain game things. Mm. Okay, I'm going to send you well, one, Melissa. Give me your address. Okay, you. great. Please Melissa, do. you would I, know it if you saw it. I promise you I, I love a brain game, honestly. One thing also that might be worth mentioning is uh, the black blob returns in that scene, too. Yes. Isn't that oh, correct? They see it. Yeah, they the see darkness. It they see the it, the, the darkness. Bears. And can, can we pause to talk about the darkness for a minute? Because um, yes. I found, I forget where it is in this section, but it's explained that Adam named all the animals. Maybe it was in the Dell scene. And that, like, every time he named them they stopped evolving and that's what i was wondering what if the darkness was was like an unnamed animal that that just continued to evolve and became magical that was what i that was my theory well there was a theory that atticus when he saw it he was like oh yeah that genesis 219 thing Adam missed one, uh, which... Yes, yeah. I think that's what he at one point said. He had that. pointed to that. Wasn't... And I think that the understanding of the Genesis 2.19, I think that was the verse, uh, was when we were finding out about the magic and when Atticus hears mm-hmm. basically what this religion slash cult believes. And he is kind of in disbelief that he, they're actually saying these things out loud. And they're like, this is normal. Uh, and yeah. that was one of the things they were like, this is a good allegory for what we're doing here. And he's like, really? Mm-hmm. Is it? <laughs> is it? <laughs> uh, so then I feel like with with uh, the his father healed, but still uh, 
in pain and unable to move. Mm -hmm. And I believe that he locks uh, George and Letitia in the bathroom. At this point, mm-hmm. I might have my order or mixed up. in their suite or in their or own things, right? Like yeah. in their they're, they're prisoners now. Yeah. Yeah. They're in a lap yeah. of luxury, but they cannot leave it. Yes. Uh, the ceremony. Is that what they would call it? The ceremony? Yeah. The ritual. Yeah. They call the ritual a lot. Yeah. Happening. Party Karama, you, you want to take you want to take this part? Sure. Some, some white white chalks on the ground and and hoods and magic. We spoiled it, but yes, there are white chalks <laughs> on the ground and hoods and magic. <laughs> so they take uh, they take Atticus to a room that is clearly a room that's usually in use. He can see scuffs on the ground that they've like moved furniture and stuff. They really should have lifted with their knees instead of dragging it. But never mind that. Uh, so. There are markings on the ground and there is a door that's a freestanding door that's been placed there, which would make me very afraid. I'm like, oh, I don't like that door. It's not going Mm -hmm. anywhere. What's coming through it? What's going on the other side? So they have a freestanding door. The door has lettering on it from a language that is unfamiliar to Atticus. And uh, they then reveal that this language is the language of Adam. And he's like, okay, Mm -hmm. weird. And then he sees this circle that's been drawn with chalk with silver. And it has a bunch of markings that look like, I think he said it looks like a pentagram that's been affected by a magnetic field. So it's sort of like a warped pentagram. And he says it reminds him of circuitry and circuit designs where you need sort of some sort of conduit. And then he realizes that he indeed is... Le conduit. And he says, oh, you want me to stand there? Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. and they're like, yep, exactly. And they hand him a book with the language of Adam. And he looks at it. He's like, I cannot read this. And they're like, no, you can. It's fine. Everyone can read it. You just need to remember how. <laughs> Which would really peeve me if I were in his situation. I'd be like, no, I just told you <laughs> I don't speak this language. But go off. Okay. So they stick him in the center. And then they change one of the letters in the chalk circle, because the chalk circle also has lettering from the language of Adam. And they change one of the letters, and then he's got that cement foot feeling again, can't go anywhere. And then they uh, change another letter, and he is suddenly able to see what the language of Adam means and understand, but he cannot open his mouth to speak. And then they change a third letter, and then he can speak, and he suddenly starts reciting these words of Adam, all of the scary men, white men in robes, which I wonder what that might symbolize, uh, all mm-hmm. of the scary white men in robes who are going to sacrifice him to this creature that's going to come out the other side. He's like, what is it? And they say, it's light. It's the earliest light. And he's like, I don't necessarily need to see that. But so he starts reading the language and they're all huddled waiting for stuff to come through. And as he's reading the language, he has this understanding and this calm where he realizes, oh, okay, I am going to be devoured by oblivion. And he has a sort of flashback to Korea when he was in the Korean War. And he remembers that they had some preacher, a white preacher, I believe it was, come and speak to them because their regular Black preacher was in trouble because there had been an an argument or a tussle or some fisticuffs over some white people in the platoon or regiment or whatever the military word is, not wanting to share their mess hall with the black soldiers. 
And uh, then all of the black soldiers were punished because they were allegedly the ones who started it, which was not true. And Truman had said, you need to integrate. And then they were like, no. So this white preacher comes to preach to this black congregation and says, you know, you guys need to not fight because when you're in heaven, everyone's going to be the same. There's no race. There's no gender. You're not men or women or black or white. And one dude who might be my favorite character is like, if I'm not going to be a man in heaven, then what's the fucking point? (laughs) How's that different from being dead? (laughs) So uh, he brings this up and it's ignored, obviously. But in this remembering Atticus is like, oh, this is what this is like. I will just be undone. I won't be me anymore. Mm -hmm. I won't be a man anymore. I'll be unmanned and unnamed, I think he said. And Mm -hmm. so he's like, I can understand how somebody might want that, might want to become a part of this light, but I don't want that. So I have something literally up my sleeve. And we find out that he got a note, an unsigned note with breakfast that said, when you can read this, do. And so it's written in the language of Adam. He reads it. It's got three words on it. And then he is shielded from the light and sort of just kind of has this darkness that covers his eyes. And as the light comes through, he can hear everyone else screaming. And then he faints. The end. And then they, <laughs> that, and then it was just like, well, that was a lucky break. And you, we, I think we find out that it was Caleb who gave, it was William mm-hmm. who gave him the note, but it was Caleb who wrote the note. Yes. I mean, there's like, more, but that's the end of the ceremony. Yes. Yeah. No. And right. I'm saying, I'm saying, what's up your sleeve, Caleb? What, yeah. what are you doing? I mean, they called it out for what it was. It was a coup. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to kill his dad. So he's like, yeah, "Yeah, this is good. I don't know. I, but I, I think I, and then for the rest of the chapter, he, Caleb is, is, and I'm putting this in air quotes, like nice. So he, well, he's gone, isn't he? Well, he real quick before we get past it, these men all turn into fucking ash. Like they are (laughs) frozen. I mean, they have the best death for these horrible people they you know deserve to die so but they're like all they describe it as uh Pompeii. what's it called Pompeii yeah, of, like of they're Pompeii. all frozen <laughs> in fear and then he like walks a step and they all just like disintegrate into ash which I thought was a a good visual and then afterwards they're met by William who says Mr. <laughs> Turner I'm so glad you survived your ordeal intact oh and Atticus says yeah me too <laughs> uh-huh. And then Letitia takes, uh, sneaks all her dresses off, which she deserves. They give point. them to yeah. her at that point. No, they give them. She yeah, snuck she, them off earlier, uh-huh. and but they didn't have the car, and so yeah, they they're all packed up. Yeah, honestly, the end of it was kind of. I mean, the end is like okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. and like, they the add ritual. magical yeah. immunity to their yeah. cars, so Caleb, the police won't see them driving back. Which Caleb is makes nice. it magic on their car, and you're like, "What's your deal, Caleb?" Yeah. What is your deal, Caleb? I don't trust. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing, but like, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't trust him. I don't trust him either. Yeah, well, I feel like he's not a good guy. He's he's using Atticus in a much more fortuitous way for yeah. Atticus, but his father was also using Atticus. He just wanted to, one of them wanted to kill Atticus for his ends, and the other wanted to save Atticus 
for selfish ends. Well, and I think it's interesting because earlier we had talked about race and these uh, scary men in robes and how they want to use him as a sacrifice. But I think it's worth noting that they would have rather he had been white for the sacrifice. They're like, oh, we don't even want to kill you. (laughs) Which is its own special fun racism. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I think it's really interesting because they had talked about him being sort of diluted from this, uh, from Yield Braithwaite. Who that's I cannot remember his first name, so that's his first name now is Yield. Uh, mm-hmm. which, it is, it's factual. Titus, yeah, Titus, yes, Titus, that was his name. I'm still gonna call him Yield Braithwaite. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that even in like having this special blood, it's sort of like a one drop type deal, one drop rule where one drop of black blood makes you black, and it's like it doesn't matter what else other magical properties your blood has, this other thing made it bad, Uh, which I found fascinating because I'm like, you literally need him. He is better than you in terms of your society Mm -hmm. and your beliefs, which again felt very Mormon because until I think it was the late 70s, the Mormon church had this belief that uh, Black people had like the mark of Cain and were bad and couldn't be like elders in the church. Not the actual term elder that they use for uh, for missions, but couldn't be, have like high positions in the church. And that's like um, within living memory. Dana's little sci-fi corner. I looked up uh, a little bit more about Edgar Rice Burroughs because I thought there was a reason that he was mentioned so many times. Edgar Rice Burroughs obviously mm-hmm. is the author of both the Princess of Mars series, but also uh, the Tarzan series. What I learned about him is he is from, he is northern liberal country racist where like he's from California and his family's you can like trace his family back to the 17th century Massachusetts colony like so he's like Mayflower white fought in the revolutionary war like he's Mayflower right but born and raised and from California basically and like I think he went to Yale like very like white white but Princess of Mars as as I mentioned in this book is about a confederate soldier he's the hero you know john carter which they made the movie is a virginian good old boy confederate soldier who goes to mars and becomes like a a white savior if you can be a white savior on a planet of like people of different literally a white savior with like red and green people um and then tarzan if you're only familiar with tarzan from the movie the villain of tarzan in the book is not uh clayton or not uh a jaguar, the people who kill Tarzan's parents are like a black tribe. Of, and those are the people that, that Tarzan is like. Yikes. So Yikes. it's like, those are <laughs> racist works yeah. that this book is uh, explicitly, I think, calling out and trying to engage with. And I think it's interesting. I didn't realize that Edgar Rice Burroughs was the one who named Tarzana because that's then where he lived. And oh. he was famous and wrote Tarzan. And oh, had... he's like, that's what it's named now. That's crazy. That, and that's for wild. listeners not in L.A., that's a it's an area in the valley, Tarzana. Yes. yes. Thank you. An area uh, of the San Fernando I had, did not know that. Didn't yeah. know that. Tarzan I also didn't know that Tarzan was super racist until I read this. So I want to talk about names for a minute. Uh, yeah. Because... So the main, the trio, they all had names that Mm -hmm. stuck out to me as like last names of famous black people. 
So Atticus's last name is Turner, which obviously made me think of Nat Turner and Turner's Rebellion. And then um, George's last name was Barry, which I was like, is that supposed to be like Chuck Barry? Because yes. Mm. <laughs> and then um, Letitia's last name is Dandridge. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with Dorothy Dandridge, Dorothy who Dandridge, was yeah. the yeah. first Black woman to be nominated for Best Actress in a leading role. And Halle Berry played her in an HBO, hey HBO, film about Dorothy Dandridge called Introducing Dorothy Dandridge. And then Halle Berry was the first Black woman to win Best Actress in a Leading Role. And also the most recent wow. one. Whoa. That was what, 2003, I think. Five? No, three. Uh-huh. It was I either think, three or four. Three. Good, good, good. Uh-huh. I think most... Uh, Readers also will say Atticus and see that as uh, Atticus Finn. Like, Atticus Finn. Atticus Finn. Yeah. yeah. Just like because that's so in the American lexicon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Turner, without spoiling anything, that is explained. The last names are explained a little bit more. Oh, was I right? <laughs> very, very perceptive of you, Karama. Oh, thank you. Bonus point. I like names. <laughs> names are a thing. Um, speaking of names, what do you make of Braithwaite? <laughs> It made me think of like a wraith, like a thing like that comes and gets people. I realize this is an auditory medium and some of you <laughs> cannot see the googly eyes and hands that I'm doing, but they're great. Uh, and it made me think of like a wraith and also whiteness. So like evil whiteness. Yeah. That's yes, predatory. It just sounded very rich, like uh, inherited wealth kind yeah. of name. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. When extremely white and New England. Mm-hmm. Like if we were hanging out with their family members now, like that person would be wearing Spearies and like mm-hmm. boat shoes. Yeah, out no in, out They ro- went, they, Harvard Legacy. Harvard Legacy, you know. Yes. <laughs> they put a dime in their penny loafers is a really good joke. I feel like, yeah, is there any, we're going to go deeper into this book and, and do final stories, but. But what are you guys' overall impressions about the first section? I was like, what is going to happen from here on yeah. out? Because it felt like a very completed story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I felt like we finished the book, and yet there are many more pages to go. I had yeah. almost wished that that was it. I kind of liked that as a complete story, and everybody gets away in the end. Well, not everybody. Not Mr. Samuel Braithwaite. Uh, but everyone who we like gets away in the end and is scot-free and gets a magic car, which is cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I, I want to know more about this monster. And I'm also kind of curious mm-hmm. about Uncle George's wife because like, I think. Hippolyta? Yeah. Because there's like, mm-hmm. just mentioning her being somewhere else. I was like, Ish, what's happening? <laughs> I do feel like that's the way it seems like it's going is that it's all these kind of interconnected Mm -hmm. story and anthology within the same world with this rotating uh, group of characters. Which is very Lovecraftian because Lovecraft had like similar monsters in his stories, but it wasn't all the same plot. And always like the same place. Like that's very Lovecrafty where it's like, and very like Stephen King, where it's like, they will all just take place in Maine. Everything's in <laughs> Maine. There is a very funny episode of Billy on the Street where Billy Eichner stops somebody on the street and is like, hey, so we're going to play a quick game of where does this Stephen King story take place? And she keeps <laughs> guessing places that aren't Maine. And then he just responds, no, it's Maine. No, it's Maine. To the point that no, it's Maine doesn't sound like words anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's a lot of similar location. I like that this location is going to be uh, the area of Chicago, 
uh, hopefully, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then maybe some adventures. But I do feel like the back of the book feels a bit disingenuous because I thought that this was going to be mostly road trip. The whole. Mm. Me too. Yeah. Because the, the back of the book, if you just read the description, it's only, it doesn't mention that it's a blend of multiple stories. They really are only like this, the the plot of this first story. And you're like, oh, At the well, I guess very we got through. bottom, they do. But nobody reads yeah. that far. It says a chimerical blend of magic, power, hope, and freedom that stretches across time, touching diverse members of two Black families. Lovecraft Country is a devastating kaleidoscopic portrait of racism, the terrifying specter that still haunts us today. Mm. Yeah, but even that, you have to I, sort of squint. <laughs> like, this could have been that that portrait. Yeah, you know? it could have been. I I will say I agree with Jennifer. You were saying earlier that it feels like it's going to be the show is going to be better in a way. Like it almost feels like a lot of books like I was very impressed how normal people was adapted. But I was like, how is normal people going to be adapted into a show? It's so internal. And this feels it already feels like a show when you're reading it. And some of the action, I feel like I had to reread and stuff Mm -hmm. because it was just going so fast. Um, so I'm excited for the show. Yeah, I am excited for the show also because I don't like reading about eldritch creatures and like the Lovecraftian trope of like, this thing is so horrifying. I couldn't even tell you what it looked like (laughs) if I wanted to. And an octopus. It looks like an octopus. Yeah, (laughs) scary octopus. (laughs) Looks like a very big green octopus. He looks like (laughs) the Ood from Doctor Who, if there are any Doctor Whovians out there. Uh but green. And uh, I do just want to touch again on the fact that Matt Ruff is white, and I'm interested to see how that continues to shape the narrative. Um, I do think that it's worth talking about the own voices movement, which is something that was happening mostly in young adult literature, talking about people being able to tell their own stories and characters of color and stories of color being written by people of color and particularly of those colors. And I think that kind of stemmed out mm-hmm. of things like Eleanor and Park, which was supposed to be this great interracial love story. And then it was just so anti, it was like very Orientalist in its depiction of Park. And there was a lot left to be desired in uh, Rainbow Rowell's depiction of it. I think that she's an incredible writer and I like a lot of her other stories, but I do think she dropped the ball in that particular instance. And I will, uh, mm-hmm. can I ask you, Karama? Yeah. You know, with someone with a, a white author, if, if Matt Ruff does want to explore racism, mm-hmm. he doesn't just want to write about white characters. True. It's but it's different What's to make balance? it's different to make it the, the make these black people the protagonists and tell the story about these black families. And I do. Th- I'm not saying that people can't write characters of different races than them. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying that. I do think it's also important to look at the institution of publishing and who we're giving money to, to tell these stories. And until black people are getting enough and the same or more amount of money to tell these stories about black people, I think that that's something that we need to question and we need to call out. And it's things like earlier this year, which crazy that this happened this year, because this year has been 18 years. uh, American Dirt came out by Janine Cummins. And that was something where people were talking about the Own Voices movement and how she's telling this very exploitative story of these fictional families crossing the border. And it's not her story. And it's just this imagined thing in her head. And there are plenty of people who do have this story and they're not getting the meetings. They're not getting the money. And 
it's like she's getting millions of dollars to tell these stories. Mm -hmm. And even with Lovecraft Country, it's being adapted and it has this black cast and Jordan Peele is on as a producer. And I think all of that's great. And uh, it's a black female creator too, co-created, Misha Green. So there are a lot of black people who are getting work through this. But at the same time, is there no one black who's writing similar stories? I mean, uh, Octavia Butler has so many amazing stories and maybe her estate doesn't want them adapted or something like that. It's weird that they're not on TV though. It's very weird. Maybe there are reasons. Like sometimes with, with a whole estate, you're like, maybe someone hasn't sold the rights because someone would have bought one of those. I mean, you would, you would think that somebody would want to adapt Kindred or something like that. Yeah. I'll do Parable (laughs) of the Sower right now. (laughs) But I think that Mm -hmm. Octavia Butler is just one great in this genre, but there are Black people writing sci-fi and horror right now. There are Black people writing Black sci-fi and horror right now. So I I just want to... The, I don't think that if you want to explore racism, obviously you can't just have white people. Um, but I think that it is worth it to talk about telling Black stories from the Black perspective when you are not Black and Black people are doing that and they are not getting the deals that you're getting. And mm-hmm. absolutely, and the decentralizing of Black voices on Black topics, even with nonfiction. And right now, everybody's talking about the book White, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And uh, people talk about things like White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh and Jane Elliott's work with the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes experiment. And I think that all of those people are great. And there is something that has to be learned from white people about white people and racism. But at the same time, you have to listen to Black experts and there needs to be not a loss of Black voices. So the white perspective on this, which is necessary and important, and white people do have the job of teaching other white people about racism, can't be at the expense of Black voices in that same field. Mm -hmm. I think there's a balance, right? Because, you know, with a book like White Fragility, I do think it's and I'm speaking as a white person, so I might put my foot in my mouth. But I, I think it's uh, a positive step for white people not to ignore racism and to be like, yeah, I'm white and I'm going to do the labor of teaching my fellow white people how to be less terrible. I think the burden, I think it's a complicated issue and I want to get it right. I think the 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 challenge for some white authors is they don't want to just write white characters because Mm -hmm. they're like, that's not how the world works. Mm -hmm. They don't want to just write worlds where the white character is the protagonist and the people of color are just like on the side to serve the white protagonist because that's just not great. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's the challenge of saying, okay, how do I write a, a book that reflects how the world looks as a white person in a way that isn't isn't um, taking over for for black people writing their own stories, and I, I I think that hopefully Lovecraft Country seems like a. I hope that Harper Perennial like publishes a diverse roster of artists, and at least I'm heartened that the adaptation is all black voices coming through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know if there is a if there is a real answer because you know I wouldn't want this book reckoning with with the racism of Lovecraft to be with a white protagonist. Oh, I think it would be impossible. It would be not a good mm-hmm. book. It would yeah. be a green book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have I think not seen. green book is kind of a perfect um, inversion of this book, 
where uh, right. maybe to make it more accessible to a white audience and having been, I assume, written by a white person because I do not think any black go people Go with your involved. gut, Jennifer. And I'm going to go with my gut and say I'm pretty sure a white person wrote Green Book. Um, you have this story that very carefully centers a white character because that is the experience they can relate to and maybe Viggo Mortenstern's time playing dice with some of the the waiters outside the hotel is actually a more important story to tell than this fascinating concert pianist who has this really mm-hmm. rich and amazing history as a homosexual black man that like, kind of gets relegated to secondary character status. And he's so, real. That's the, and that's he's a real the person. worst part. He's a real person. He's a real person. And it's just about Viggo Mortenstern being like, maybe I don't hate black people now. Maybe I'm like okay with them, um, <laughs> and uh, and that is what the entire movie about is about. And it was very frustrating for me because this real black pianist who existed seemed like a much more interesting person, and it would make for a much more interesting movie if they had spent more time talking about him and his experiences. I think that there is mm-hmm. a space for Lovecraft Country. I think that we need to challenge the space the 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 breadth of that space while there are still black authors telling black stories that don't have the same amount of that don't have the same level of voice in the industry there's also something yeah. of the two things that you brought up karama of this book and then especially american dirt there is something that is unsavory and like systemic that these are white authors that are profiting off of trauma mm-hmm. specifically like the trauma of black folks, the trauma of Latinx communities, like that feels that is just like it's yucky. gross. <laughs> it's gross. Yeah. And uh, centralizing black joy, I think, has also been a conversation that people are having now because we're talking about black people and making sure that we uh, amplify black voices. But we also want to amplify Black voices in situations of joy. And there's this book that's about, like, Black men knitting that I think is super cool. Oh, that's so nice. What's it called? I think it's called that's... Black Men Who Knit or something. I'll look it up right oh, now. Okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated issue. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. And I'm really glad that, you know, we're, we're having it reading this book. I think that's... Important to remember. My understanding also of American Dirt is that, and based on excerpts I read, is that it was uh, garbage also and incredibly racist and bad. Uh, I think that Matt Ruff does a better job, I hope, than the author, but it's still part of the same conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I will say I don't know much about the publishing world, but I do know more about the uh, movie and TV world, and it, it, it does make me relieved that this story is being adapted by black creators mm-hmm. you know and that doesn't always happen like i know it's it change it's changing because people call that shit out now on social media and that's the only reason why it's changing but you know like very female centric stories men constantly write and very you know uh, and white white men just get to get to tell all the stories, and that's like still the problem in entertainment industry. I think it, I think because it's much more public facing, it's 
it it's changing a little quicker probably than publishing mm-hmm. because you actually see the faces of these people. They're celebrities. Um, so I hope that publishing catches up with that. Yeah. I, I think publishing is such an insular, uh, boys club is the wrong word, but like gate kept elite gate kept community that uh, needs to change mm-hmm. in terms of diversity a ton. I mean, it needs to change in a lot of ways. I think also like, the internship structure makes it very elitist. You know, the way people have come to come into that world. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of factors. I think there's it's not just one solution. There's a lot of problems that need a lot of addressing. So the book is called Real Men mm-hmm. Knit by Quana Jackson mm-hmm. and it's Penguin Random House. So major publisher. You guys should check it out. Oh, it's like fiction. a lovely book. It's- I would love to read that. <laughs> yeah, you, you Thank buy you. it. Buy it from a black owned um, bookstore. Well, I think that's that's it for maybe the first section of Lovecraft Country. You guys ready to, mm. to read more interconnected stories? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And I also want to go back and read Lovecraft, which I've not read since high school. It's, it was the so one the, thing that I was thinking about while I was reading this. I'm going to say this about Lovecraft. I think the prose is bad. Overrated. It's really purple prose. It's I, really overwrought prose. I remember I just, I in high school good. feeling like, like, this is how good writing is like weird poetry you don't understand in high school i thought justin timberlake was going to be the love of my life so we've all made mistakes in high school this is a true story i fell in love in college because someone brought me down to the basement of our co-ed literary fraternity and turned off the lights and read aloud an hp lovecraft story to me oh my god you have to tell me who it was so much you know who it is there was so much i don't you have to tell me what story it was also (laughs) so i can read it i'm sorry uh, but that's the straightest thing i've ever That's our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dana Schwartz, and you can find me on Twitter at Dana Schwartz with three Zs. You can follow Jennifer Wright at Jen Ashley Wright. Karama Dankwa is at Karama Drama. Melissa Hunter is at Melissa FTW. And Tian Tran is smart enough to have gotten off Twitter, but she is on Insta at Hank Tina. Our executive producer is Christopher Hesiotis, and we're produced and edited by Mike Johns. Next week, will there be more embarrassing stories about college? Who's to say? Probably. But there will be part two of our discussion of Lovecraft Country. Popcorn Book Club is a production of iHeartRadio. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.